When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Score, the podcast. The only show taking you inside the studios of the world's most celebrated composers and musicians. From Hollywood this week, inside Format Entertainment, this is Score, the podcast. I'm Kenny Holmes. Robert Kraft. He's Robert Kraft. So great to be here in the heart, the engine room of the soundtrack of many, many of our favorite movies. Yes, we also want to introduce our executive producer, Matt Schrader. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. There's Robert Kraft. Ooh, oh, wow. Nice new drop for us this That's week. amazing. <laughs> um, oh, this is amazing. We have a really cool guest this week, and we are expanding our format a little bit. We're in the offices of Dave Jordan. He is the music supervisor of all music supervisors in Hollywood. Basically, the number one music supervisor. And yep. he's been in charge of some of the biggest films of the last, uh, definitely of the last 10 years, uh, the Guardians of the Galaxy franchise, Captain America, First Avenger, all the big Marvel movies, Guardians Black of the Panther, Galaxy 1 and 2, Black Panther, Daredevil, Elektra, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Iron Man, so many, so many big ones. And he's a huge comic book collector. Um, yep. So it's kind of come full circle for also, him. Also, we should mention television, too. Empire, just yeah. for example. Yeah, so um, we're going to dive in a little bit about what a music supervisor does so you can yep. sort of know what to expect. But um, super important process of the filmmaking world, and uh, we're lucky to be in the offices of the, the biggest guy in the game. Dave Jordan. He's um, a legend that's still becoming more legendary. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Plus, we have an all-new episode of The Inside Track with Dr. Sulan Tan. This week's episode is The Ocean Depths. And uh, it's a really interesting study that Dr. Sulan Tan goes into about how music can manipulate your feeling of what you're seeing on the screen. And she kind of goes into that in different ways on all the different episodes. But this is a really interesting example of they, they did a fundraiser and played different types of music. And... The way people steer, were steered in a direction based on the music that was chosen. It's, it's a really interesting uh, psychological experiment. It's a scientific way of showing yeah. music actually turning people's the way that someone interprets the music and, yes. and a scene that they watch, which is really, really interesting. Very Sounds interesting. like five pounds of cheese. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like five pounds of cheese. Uh, and, of course, another chance for our audience to win a fabulous prize. We're playing Name That Score with Dave Jordan. And today's topic, Matt. Famous movie songs. We uh, we did this a few weeks ago uh, with Tamar Cali. Now we're doing a version two. Oh, of, round uh, two of this. So. Well, if anyone knows famous music songs, it should be Dave Jordan. Yeah, music. Supervisor. He's the guy. We'll we'll put uh, these are all I think going to be before his time, but eh, I'm sure he knows them all. So all right, so we're going to get into what a su music supervisor does in just a second. But we were having this discussion about reboots and. Uh, spin-offs and different shows and movies um so we all came up with our long overdue reboots and or spin-offs that should be made or maybe even uh, are already being made yeah i mean most uh, look every movie robert you were talking about this 
all kinds of studios. There's there's almost departments dedicated to what's another movie that's like this movie that we did. Can we do a sequel? Can we do a prequel? Can the hype's already there. We, we can. It's actually, almost marketed there's a word already. For it, which our audience should know. The word is pre-awareness. You look for a pre-awareness title, meaning yep. you don't have to explain everything about the movie. For example, if I said to you these words, we're going to do the Lego movie, you might think, what is that movie going to be about? But you already have an idea. It's Lego. If I say I'm going to do existing a franchise Batman movie... You know, an Iron Man movie, a... You don't have to market it. It's so already there. So we've got a couple that yep. we've gone through that are, are good. Robert, you have your list uh, in front of you there? I do. Well, first of all, at the top of my list would have to be the sequel to the movie that I worked on many years ago that has found an audience slowly. That's Hudson Hawk. I always felt that Hudson Hawk <laughs> 2 would have That's as big a cult hit. following they as made- Hudson Hawk. That that movie got a lot of extra love at the uh, Bruce Willis roast. <laughs> Bruce Willis roast. It's actually, I think we might have the most number of raspberries, which is worst movie awards. Oh wow! Um, and uh, it's just you know it it's a what do they call it? an acquired taste? Mm. So I think that would be top. I also was thinking about you could do movies like, for example, take The Graduate. You could do the postgraduate, oh. <laughs> where uh, Dustin Hoffman is now deeply in debt, trying to pay back his college loans. He's now you know eighty and still hasn't paid them back. And I'm not entirely sure where the movie goes from there, but it had such a. But he's paying bills. Paul Simon could clearly <laughs> yeah, write the song. He's in debt. He's in debt. He's paying bills, and he's probably having an affair. I'm not sure with who. Because Mrs. Robinson at this point would be a hundred. Yep. So she's it, long gone. Long gone. But uh, you know, if you guys, as they say it in a studio, bring it back to me. Well, those are the two very serious yeah. things that I think studios <laughs> sh- should consider now. You also had, you had one other that I'm I'm eyeing on your list there. Which one is it? Sit by me. <laughs> well, sit by me would be the stand by me. Kids have grown much older. They're now all in wheelchairs, and they find a dead. Uh, some roadkill. That's where I'm going. Some and they wheel their road, road, their wheelchairs up to it. <laughs> Kenny, what do you have? Well, I took a little more serious approach to this. Somewhat. Serious. Um, serious. The first one I think should be made, and I think is already rumored of being made after I uh, did a little research, but I think it would be really cool to have a Matrix prequel yeah. to show... There's been a little bit of chatter about maybe them starting to work on It's been thrown thrown around a little bit. Hmm. Uh, Another one I'd like to see made, just because the the comedy troupe has kind of not been around in the same movie together in a while, but uh, it would be cool to do Old School 2, maybe New School. Nice. Get Luke Wilson and... Sophomore year. (laughs) Will Ferrell and Vince Vaughn, all those guys back together. I don't know. Maybe it's past its time. Maybe it wouldn't work, but I think it'd be it'd be worth the shot. That movie was kind of game changing in the comedy world. It it brought Will Ferrell and that group, Vince Vaughn, those guys, kind of to the forefront of uh, comedy movies. Uh, when it comes to TV, I think it would be really cool to have a Jesse Pinkman mm. Breaking Bad spinoff. Nice oh. post Walter White. Cool maybe post we, Walter White. Maybe we could call it Yeah Science. <laughs> Mr. White. You know, you might want to call That's it something good. like <laughs> <a pretty> mathematics. 
Yo, bitch. Sorry, I'll bleep that out. <laughs> now uh, we need that E on our, uh, it's going to say explicit next to the episode. Thanks a lot. And then my last one, this is a bonus one um, that I think many people have requested we do, and that would be score a film music documentary <laughs> to legends that keep becoming more legendary. I am so down He's for a legend that. that's still becoming more legendary. I am so down for score two. <laughs> so those are my picks. Matt, what do you got? Oh well, I, I made a couple of these. I wasn't sure if we were going to get to them. Uh, these these now sound way too serious because uh, <laughs> you guys are, are really. Uh, uh, but uh, Tron, a, a third Tron movie would be great. Tron oh, Legacy yeah. had that killer uh, score and soundtrack from Daft Punk and yes. Trapanese that was just fantastic. Um, and then a Spielberg movie, which his movies have a long history of being made into sequels that somebody else directs and they don't quite live up to. What the original? Oh, I was. think I know where you're going with this. Minority Report. Yep. was great, and um, and a, a sequel to that. Prequel I love to that, that idea. Uh, you can't really re redo it. I don't think at this point. But would you um, have Tom Cruise? Maybe. Yeah. I mean, if it's if it's set in the future or something, yeah. you know, it'd be really interesting. Um, and the other one that I was throwing around is Beverly Hills Cop. Ding, yeah, ding, wouldn't it be great ding, to have ding, Eddie ding, Murphy ding, come ding, back ding, and ding, 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 yeah. do something? Maybe you could have uh, Michael Stein play the song on a with a banana. Yeah. Okay. And <laughs> like I think on does. that note, <laughs> pretty fresh. <laughs> if you, you know, follow our Instagram account, you know what I'm talking about. He brought it up in the episode and we found the video. Yeah. Hilarious. That sounds like five pounds of intense and amazing fun. Indeed it does. Wow. <laughs> Um, oh, all right. Wow. Well, that was it. <laughs> We've got a drop for everything. I'm now. still working oh, on wow. postgraduate. So, what happens in the middle? Our guest this week, Dave Jordan, music supervisor. Sounds like it'd be someone in charge of the composer. But as somebody, uh, Matt and I both, we don't come from the yeah, Hollywood just say, world. The, the title music supervisor, Robert, sounds so boring. A supervisor. They supervise. They What, what do they do? They supervise. Hey, they, music. Everyone, sit in line. Right. I'm here. <laughs> Tell us what a music supervisor does. It's so interesting because music supervisor is such a highly creative job and uh, a difficult job and one that's really misunderstood. So many people come to me and say... I'm so good at picking songs that have certain moods. Shouldn't I be a music supervisor? And you want to say, uh, <laughs> that is such a minor part of this. Um, as Dave will always say, it's hugely political. Because what you're doing, as we all know, movies have evolved beyond just being scores, where there's an instrumental you know, what people like to call right. background music. Right. There's pop songs. There's, there's now sometimes a dozen pop songs, sometimes 20 pop songs, and a big soundtrack is part of the movie. Yep. Someone has to be in charge of that. I'm not sure a supervisor describes that gig very well. And Well, be in charge of means what? Are they talking with the director? Or are they talking They're with the right artist? They're right in the middle of a... If you can picture a supervisor, the music supervisor is having conversations with the director. It's his movie. He wants these songs. The supervisor is then going back to the studio to say, can you afford these songs? Do you like these songs? Is this your vision of the movie that you want to produce and make? And then he's also going to all the record companies to say, the director wants a song by, I'm making it up, The Police in this song so he has to go and say can we license that song into the movie and the 
police say yes or no or their publisher says yes or no and if they say no well we got to go find another song so it's a mad scramble and sometimes there's original songs quite often a lot that are created and they go out and get a bit like kendrick lamar for black panther for example which we're going to ask dave about how that came about and Mm -hmm. even a whole separate soundtrack was created aside from the score for the film that was almost an album it was a complete album from kendrick lamar and that was Stamped with the Black Panther logo on. Now we're breaking a little bit of what we've done in the past. We've mostly talked with composers, but can you tell us about how a music supervisor relates to a composer as well? Sometimes they never speak during a film, not for any antagonistic reason. They're doing different things. The director's saying, I want original movie score for these scenes, and for these scenes, I want what are called needle drops, yep. songs to play. So the music supervisor. The great ones are involved in both. They are working with understanding with the composer where he's going to end his cue and the song's going to start and the song's going to end and the original score is going to start. Sometimes they're just really separate activities. So, um, Kind of like uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. You have Tyler Bates doing the score and exactly then right. you have an entire album of Dave popular Jordan. songs that Dave Jordan worked with James Gunn on, I imagine, which, again, we're going to ask him about that film, too, because that's one of his biggest projects. And there's one final part of a music supervision job which is rarely acknowledged, which is on a movie like, for example, Titanic, where you have on-screen music. You have the band playing on the Titanic. You have people dancing below the hold to kind of tambourine. You know, there's that whole scene. That has to be created. Somebody has to create it and supervise it. And the music supervisor is often very creatively creating original source music that's on screen. So in addition to picking songs, they have to create the musical scenes in the movie. Well, I'm certainly excited about this conversation because, again, you know, when we talk to composers, a lot of the questions, you know, they can be answered in different ways, but you sort of know of what the answer is to a point with with this, the music supervisor. This is all a new avenue for me, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners. So um, this is going to be exciting to talk with Dave. Yeah, yeah, man. So, again, we're here inside Format Entertainment coming up after the break. We're going to invite Dave into his own office. Dave Jordan, in charge of many of the biggest Marvel films over the last 10 or 15 years, and many other films as well. He's a music supervisor. This is Score the Podcast. We'll be right back. Hey, guys. Robert Kraft, and I'm inviting you to check us out on Twitter for the latest from the show. Giveaways for Name That Score. Videos. Maybe even a new track from that pop superstar, Jordan Bieber. Check out our handle on Twitter at Score the Podcast. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to Score the Podcast. We're here inside Format Entertainment in Hollywood with our guest this week. He's the name of all names for music supervisors, Dave Jordan. Thanks for having us in your studio. He's also... My main gazane, DJ. <laughs> we are so lucky to be here with Dave, who really has invented, in some ways, the field of music supervision for the 21st century. I don't think that's too exaggerated. I mean, when we first met, were you focused on music supervision as a career? Was that your goal, or was it something you were experimenting with as one possible way to go in the music industry? So I came to... Uh, Hollywood chasing my dream of being in the record business. And 
like everybody who comes to LA chasing their dream in the record business, I wanted to do A&R. I wanted to sign bands. I wanted to find the next big hits. And I was fortunate enough to uh, build my career up and do that exact thing for Atlantic Records and then Universal Records. And while I was at Universal, um, I also fell into this position of helping put together soundtracks. Um, and this was in the 90s when every single movie had a soundtrack, whether there was any music in the movie or not, we would, uh, the label would run around, they'd get the rights to the film to do the soundtrack, and we'd run around and get unreleased B-sides and uh, overcuts from every artist that was on the charts, and that would be the soundtrack. And while I was doing that process, um, I every once in a while I would interact with a person called a music supervisor. And one time I was talking to them and I said, what exactly is it that you do? Because I'm putting together the soundtracks. <laughs> and they would say, well, I work for the filmmakers and I put the songs in the movie and work on the music and work with the people who are singing on camera, et cetera, et cetera. And a light bulb went off in my head. And the light, it was like finding out that I could be a professional astronaut all of a sudden. Hmm. Like there was a way for me to get to the moon. Like you it, had the abilities and you didn't even know it. Exactly. And, 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 I thought, so let me get this straight. You put music into film and somebody pays you for that job? <laughs> I, could, I literally couldn't believe it, which is the same thing I get from a lot of interns who come in and they say, I, uh, you know. So, um, so I went down that course, and that's a whole other story of how I progressed there. But I came into contact with, with you, Robert, when you were at Fox because I was – um, in the same social circles as several of the people who worked for you, the, several of the disciples who worked for you, um, Daniel Diego and Julia Michaels and, and uh, Noblock, Mike Noblock. So that's kind of how we started to interact. I looked at your list of credits and I was amazed to see not only how many we'd done together, but that the first one, and I don't know if it predates it because sometimes movie release dates on IMDb don't reflect when we worked on the movie, but the first one is the epic. You know, if you look, look at a list of great American films, you get Citizen Kane. Um, often you get The Godfather. Oh boy. And then I think number three is usually Dude, Where's My Car? Yeah. I mean, that's kind of <laughs> gets right up there. Um, was that the first one or was Daredevil? Do you remember? I was working for a guy named Happy Walters. Oh, my goodness. I forgot. Yes, I was working for a guy named Happy Walters, and... Uh, this little movie called Dude, Where's My Car came along, and it was a super low budgety thing, and it was about two stoners. And, Exploded. Yes. And uh, and so because I was there, I kind of ended up on that movie, um, which was an amazing experience. And the director's a guy named Danny Liner, and we had a blast. We had no money, and we had to come up with, with ideas. And I can't remember one song, Dude, Where's My Car. I mean, I just... Oh my God. I, I do not remember. <laughs> I do remember that we, you did such a good job, whatever the songs were, and the movie did so well, that I guess Daredevil was number two. So I left shortly thereafter, probably a year, nine months after I did that movie, I decided to leave Happy because I was burned out working for him. And um, I got a phone call from you um, 10 days before I was going to leave. And you said, hey, I hear a rumor you're going to leave Happy Walters. And I said, yes. And you said, well, what are you going to do when you leave? And I said, I don't know. i am just got to get out of here. And you said, well, listen, 
I have a movie that if you help me out on, I will help you get a, I, I will put you in the rooms of some bigger movies and you'll get a shot to pitch on those. And the movie was this movie called Behind Enemy Lines. Mm. And, and here's the, that's amazing. And I'll, and I'll tell you the story because it's a, a amazing story, which is I did this movie Behind Enemy Lines, which I did in like two weeks. It was a financial issue. They wanted a U2 song and we needed songs. I was telling them about this yesterday. <laughs> I couldn't remember whether you were on it. Yes. And that you was. You want to tell the tale just for a minute that they wanted the director, John Moore. Yeah. Let's tell it together. He wanted Elevation by U2. Yeah. And they wanted something like. Five hundred thousand yeah. dollars for the track, and we didn't have it anywhere near the music budget. And I was freaking out because the movie was closing, and John Moore was stamping his feet. And I think you found. Jaguar. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> whatever it yes, was. Yes, that's one of the specialties of a great music supervisor. Is the director shows up and says, "I need to have a song." That's very particular, and you say to him very gently, you can't afford it, or we can't get it. You know, the Led Zeppelin won't right. let us have that song in the movie. Then the music supervisor, the head of the studio, or the director, or the producer turns to the music supervisor and says, you're going to earn your keep right now because you got to find something to replace this song that makes the director happy, that fulfills the dramatic needs of the moment, and great music supervisors... I mean, there's nobody that's ever seen Behind Enemy Lines that sees that plane taking off from the aircraft carrier right. in that scene and thinks, man, if only there was a really expensive U2 song <laughs> here, that movie would be better. It just, it works great. And it's, it's I, every director and every editor puts U2 in the movie or ACDC. My whole career has been replacing ACDC. I mean, <laughs> that's literally funny. that's been my career. And, um, and so it's it's... I don't want to say it's cheap, but it's an easy way to get a great movie moment to put a Rolling Stone song or to put a U2 song or whatever. And, and, and that's why they're effective, but a big part of our job is to replace those songs. How many times do you sit down or, or get a cut of a movie and you, there's some song that you absolutely are sure there's no way they can afford it? Like, is that a pretty common? Very common. It's extremely common. The editor, a lot of times, just to help their cut, and, and because there's certain, you know, ACDC is a great example of this. You, it's very hard to replace ACDC. It just does a certain thing. So the editor, just trying to find the, the, the movement within the sequence or the montage, will put ACDC in there. And you're like, okay, yes, what do you know? Back in Black works in the sequence. <laughs> <laughs> what do you know? Um, and so it's a process to pop it out. Does that make your job harder, though? Because like similar with a, with a temp track, when a director gets sold on the sound of something, they're set on that. And then your job is to come in and say, we got to use something else, but they're already so heart set on something. Like how how much of a pain is that? As soon as you hear that, you're like, oh god, ACDC. Do you That's know you're going to have to be the bearer of bad news? That's the job. Yep, that is the job. You, <laughs> it's so true. Frontline, and 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 I can tell you many, 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 many stories of again replacing things like ACDC or Zeppelin, where they have immigrant song in there, and you're like, okay, and they're like, isn't it great? <laughs> and you're like it's it's immigrant song of course it's great and you know you may have to go through a hundred five hundred a thousand songs to find a replacement that's you, just part of the job w with your job there's a lot of like budgets and and yeah. you know business side of things but how focused do you have to be on just the charts and pop culture like are you 
dialed into the radio 24-7 and MTV and, and pop culture, social media, because that's probably a big draw for putting an artist on a soundtrack is how popular they are and how much they can elevate the film, right? Yeah. The, the, um, you know, most people think that music supervisors just pick up playlists. Um, and yes, that is a part of the job. That's the part of the job we love. It's also 25% of the job. Hmm. Um, I always like to say 25% is the pure creative aspect. Uh, 25% is the legal side clearance and, um, uh, budgets and details, a lot of I's, a lot of dots and a lot of I's, a lot of cross T's. Um, and 50% is politics. 50% is dealing with, um, uh, you work for a studio who's paying you, but you work for the director. A lot of times the studio and the directors don't agree. Um, sometimes the producers don't agree with the directors. Sometimes all of those parties don't agree with each other. On top of that, you have a veneer of, a record label who might have paid a half a million dollars for the rights who have their own agenda for what the soundtrack should sound like. And you have to walk out of there having everybody happy, first and foremost, your filmmakers, because that's who I I want you to explain a little bit something that you and I understand after doing it so long. But you just mentioned that the record company is invested. So if I laid it out this way, let's say. For example, I'm making a movie at Fox, and our music budget is, I'm going to make it up, $500,000. That has to include the composer, the cost of recording. Somebody sings, happy birthday, and now you have to pay for it. And somebody sings some silly song that's public domain, but you have to go record it, and somebody has to pay for that recording session. But the record label shows up, a record label or three record labels show up and say, we think there is a great soundtrack to be had for this movie. It's Borat. It's Garfield. It's a Marvel movie or some kind of Garden State, 500 Days of Summer. A record company often will call the studio and say, we read that you're making this movie. We're going to give you some money and our artists. How does that confuse the politics where you already just said you have a director who has a point of view for his movie. You have a studio who has a point of view for the movie they're making. I've actually had the experience, maybe you have, which is really strange. <laughs> this is the longest. I'm, I'm, doing, I'm, I'm trying to question. draw this scenario out right <laughs> yes. now. I'm trying to explain how record I know the work. exact scenario he's asking. <laughs> yes, that's why. The, um, I think oh, I'm wow. done. I'd like oh, to talk wow. about some other things. The um, <laughs> Sometimes the movie star shows up and tells you he has a favorite right. band. I turn the microphone over to you, and I'm going to go take a nap. Please, please. <laughs> How do you deal with the label? I, I have a very simple philosophy on this that's evolved over time. Um, and I'm blessed that I get to work with a place like Marvel. Um, Marvel takes the position on these things that the movie comes first and everything else is ancillary. ancillary. Mm. <clears throat> Which is, I th- believe, how we get the highest quality um, music in our movies and when the soundtracks come out they're directly connected to the to the project as opposed to two of the songs in the movie but there's 12 songs on the soundtrack or they're being pushed into the movie so uh kevin feige runs marvel uh all decisions are based on what's the first the best perfect thing for the movie 
You talk about 500 Days of Summer. You talk about uh, Garden State, soundtracks like that. Those are primarily driven by what was great for the movie first. I mean, you can talk specifically about those movies. but um, And so th- that's how I like to approach it. I loathe doing soundtracks that are just uh, an additional piece of business attached to a film. Because the way I, I look at it is the film might be a 50 to 100 to 200 to $300,000 investment on a, from a studio perspective. What's the investment on a soundtrack? On the high end, it's a million or $2 million, which pales to the marketing budget on the film. So the film has to be served first. So the way I like to approach it, if I can, is I try to serve the movie first. We test the movie. We have our numbers in our pocket. And then if we have a Uh, a soundtrack partner we try to find a soundtrack partner that can offer something besides money money's important like what else a lead single Mm. um an artist that fits with the you can't always get it um but an artist that fits with what the film is about what it's as pure play as you can get it to be um, cause if not, you end up with a bunch of second singles by B level artists that they're trying to break off the back of the movie. Um, and the studio on a certain level is somewhat beholden because they've taken their money, whether it's $500,000 or a million dollars, you know, it depends what it is, but it can be very, very complicated. Um, I like to sit with my director first and say, okay, we're looking at being in business with this label or these two labels. They've come to us. They want to do this. Here are their artist lists. Are there artists on these lists you find appealing? Well, yes, I love Michael Jackson. Okay, great. If we couldn't get Michael Jackson, (laughs) what would be your second pick? (laughs) And I try to get a gauge on where their head's at. And then when I interact with my studio partners, I say, well, this is kind of what the director likes. Let's press the label to commit not only the money, but artist one, two, or three, and give them a range, not just, we have to have Kesha, right? Get, get, give them some flexibility, because they can't always deliver their, their A-level artist. Or, mm-hmm. So I, that's a bit you, of a... You talked a little bit a about... Dance. It's a dance. Working with Marvel, um, and we couldn't help but notice when we walked in here that you have what looks like every comic book ever created <laughs> yeah, in your Yeah, office. we got to talk about this a little bit. This, this <laughs> runs deep. Because this is something as a kid is, that you it, were a fan it, of. Did, is this just serendipitous? Like, can you tell us uh, about your love for comics and then now how you're an integral pro- part of Marvel now? And as, we'll put a couple photos on our website. But you were you were telling us about your collection as a kid, right? So this will lead actually to how Robert was so instrumental in my relationship with Marvel. So... I did this movie behind enemy lines, which was, I don't want to say a favor. I got paid no money, but Robert said, you know, help me out on this. It's kind of a mess and I'll put you in some rooms and see if you can pitch and see if you can get a movie. And the, the movie he put me in the room on, the first one was for Daredevil, the one, the Ben Affleck movie. Mm-hmm. And I didn't deserve to be in that room. The other supervisors all had much bigger credits than me. And I knew I wasn't going to get the movie, but I knew that I had a passion for the character of Daredevil. I collected Daredevil when I was a kid. I was a Marvel guy. And the crazy thing was I spent, you know, 
days and days leading up to burning CDs. Back then, we had to burn CDs, and I made this all this you know these lists and all these characters and ideas and kingpin and everything. And I went and sat with the director, and I told him, "Oh, by the way, I grew up with Daredevil." And so the director and I talked for forty five minutes about the character of Daredevil. We never talked about music. <laughs> and he said to me, "You know, you should do this movie." And I said, "Oh my God, I would love to do this movie." And we shook hands. I was then the producer was Gary Foster. Uh, director was Mark Steven Johnson. I've done many movies for both of them, five, six movies. And I walked out of the room and I grasped the door handle as I was walking out. I had my messenger bag full of CDs, and I realized I haven't given any music to the director. And like any good music supervisor, you realize. If you give music they don't like, you're screwed and you're not no, going to get the movie. <laughs> so I took the yes and walked out of the room. Take yes for an answer. I took the yes for the answer. And that led many, many steps to this. But that led to a relationship with a guy named Avi Arad, who at the time ran Marvel. And his right-hand guy was a guy named Kevin Feige, who now runs Marvel. Uh-huh. So, so nine-year-old Dave Jordan got you the daredevil. A hundred percent. I called my mother. After I got that movie, and I said, remember all that money I used to steal from your purse mm. to get comic books? <laughs> well, it paid off. <laughs> I said, guess what? If we play our cards right, I can buy you a house. And now you have uh, the episode one of Daredevil on your wall. So I, ha- I had 90 per- 95% of my comic books uh, before work, and I only collected Marvel, um, which is serendipitous. Mm-hmm. Um, but after I got on to these movies, each one I would buy the first appearance, first appearance of the character when I worked on the movie. So that's how I acquired the higher end books over time. It was like my gift back to myself. They didn't just hook you up. It's Marvel. Come Marvel uh, has <laughs> changed over the years, but for a very long time, Marvel was considered the cheapest company to do business with. And they gave me nothing. <laughs> but it's evolved over time. Evolved. Now they're, they're very generous. They've to, done to a couple people. now. It's worked out for them. I think <laughs> the best part of the story is the fact that you didn't give any music. I just love that. And it, all, it just really shows that all the preparation you have to get a job, sometimes it's another part of your character, your life, your story that gets you the gig. Well, it's, it's a, I think that's exactly right. But it's also discovering music with a filmmaker who you've sat with for 10 minutes it's a process everything's a process it's the same thing with composers right this is called the score composers have the same problem they want to work on a marvel superhero movie but they only have comedy credits or indie movies it's very hard for them to sell in a room unless they can make a connection with the filmmakers why they are the right person right so it's the same type i think i could have given the director a bunch of stuff and he could have said oh my god I hate hip hop. Oh, that would have been the end of the. That would have been the end of the the yeah. party. Well, we're going to get to three of Dave's biggest films that he's worked on: Black Panther and the Guardians of the Galaxy franchise. When we come back, but first, the inside track. The inside track with music psychologist Dr. Sulan Tan. When I was a child, I spent hours poring over books about marine life, pondering what it must be like to dive deep and explore the bottom of the ocean. So I've always loved underwater documentaries.
was an excerpt from a live recording of Hans Zimmer's music for Blue Planet 2, the documentary series about marine life. Nature documentaries pose some real challenges for filmmakers. Good sound is difficult to capture in the wild. In particular, when filming in an undersea environment, there are many added challenges. The ocean is teeming with life, noisy life. Marine mammals, fish, crabs, shrimp all make sound. And water is a very good conductor of sound. So even noises of ships that are miles away can be picked up. As the water's flat surface above reflects sound back like a ceiling, there are also a lot of echoes in shallower waters. So the filmmaker gives us a scaled down, more focused version of this rich swirl of natural sounds. And music is often added as a backdrop to provide an emotional connection and to give us a feeling of what it's like to be immersed in this underwater world. And just as in narrative films, the score can influence the way we respond to scenes in nature documentaries. In 2016, for instance, a group of researchers played scenes of sharks from a documentary film and added different music tracks. One track was entitled Sharks from the original Blue Planet soundtrack by George Fenton, which they labeled as ominous music. The other piece was Blue Planet by George Fenton from the same soundtrack, which the researchers labeled as uplifting music. The researchers found that when the nature scenes were shown with ominous music, viewers perceived the sharks more negatively as more scary, dangerous, and vicious than those who saw the same shark scenes. With uplifting music or no music. In comparison, those who saw the shark scene with uplifting music or without music perceived the sharks as more peaceful, beautiful, and graceful. At the very end of the study, the participants were told that the research team would make a small donation to an ocean conservation fund. They asked each participant to vote for where the money should go. Should it go to a fund dedicated to protecting dolphins or to protecting sharks? Or to a miscellaneous fund. A significantly larger proportion of people who had watched the shark scene with the uplifting music selected the fund to help sharks, compared to those who'd watched the scene without music. The study was conducted by Dr. Andrew Nosel and colleagues at UC San Diego, and true to their word, the researchers donated to the fund receiving most votes. We can't necessarily conclude that the participants would have reached into their own pockets, as they were simply choosing where to allocate funds. But this gave a real-world dimension to the study and some insight into how the presence of music may have shaped attitudes. A lot of skill goes into the music and sound design of effective nature documentaries, and the music can give an emotional arc to the film. Set the tempo or pace of a natural scene that's unfolding before us, and showcase. The most spectacular moments, whether we're soaring high above the earth or exploring the depths of the ocean. Dr. Sulan Tan is a leading researcher in the study of film music and the author of many books, including her latest "Psychology of Music: From Sound to Significance," available now at score-movie.com/podcast. 
Welcome back to Format Entertainment with our guest this week, music supervisor extraordinaire Dave Jordan. And um, the music supervisor. The, yeah, the music supervisor of all music supervisors. Um, oh, and we, no. we touched a little True. bit on, <laughs> on Marvel, but um, we wanted to save the big films for uh, this block. And I want to start with Black Panther. Uh, you had Ludwig Gornson do the score and compose some really cool kind of hip-hop trap mixed with orchestral stuff. But then there was also a separate soundtrack that was a Kendrick Lamar album. Now, when you're working with a huge pop star like Kendrick Lamar, are you involved on the creative process of what these songs are because they're they're stamping the Black Panther and Marvel names on it? Or is that, Kendrick, do your thing, you're a huge pop star, whatever you do is going to be successful, so we'll, we'll take it from there. Like, How does that process work? So every movie is a little different. Um, and this one is, is, is no different in that it was a very different process, but a, a very pure process in a lot of ways. And what I mean by that is the director is uh, a guy named Ryan Coogler, mm-hmm. who had done Fruitvale Station and Creed and had enormous credibility um, and was a very exciting filmmaker uh, for Marvel to get in business with. And, um, and Ryan... Um, had gone to college with Ludwig Gornson. Right. And uh, they had become very good friends in college. And Ryan told me the whole story late one night during a session. Um, he told me the whole story about how when Ryan became kind of an it guy in Hollywood, he, um, he, Ryan still lives in Oakland. And his agent was saying, you got to get out to L.A. Everybody wants to meet you. Everybody's talking about this movie. Everybody's talking about Fruitvale Station. And he came out to L.A. He didn't know anybody. And so he slept on um, Ludwig's couch. And, and so they, in a lot of ways, Ludwig is kind of Ryan Coogler's muse. Um, and I didn't know any of this. It's an, it's an unbelievable relationship they have. Um, when we were working on the, we got into post on the movie. We could talk. I'll talk about Kendrick. But um, when we got into post on the movie, Ryan would cut the movie and work on the movie all day long, and then he would go to Ludwig's studio at ten, eleven o'clock at night, and then work till three or four in the morning. Like Ryan never slept. I. It, it was crazy. Uh, when we were scoring uh, the movie, we scored in London, and the sessions would take place overnight because we were monitoring the sessions in London. And it would be three o'clock in the morning, and Ryan would be there through the entire session wow. till ten o'clock in the morning, um, and then he would go back to editing room. So they they're they're very very tight, and the uh, Ludwig's um, fiance and Ryan's wife are very close, and so they're they're a close knit clan. Um, we had brought Ludwig in very early and talked about you know the way Marvel likes to do things, the way we have an accelerated process, the way. Um, uh, our movies are constantly being edited. So um, we, so we, we understood the relationship that Ryan and Ludwig have, and so our job was to surround them and support them and do what they wanted to do. Um, two days before Christmas, I got a call from Ludwig, my first movie with Ludwig, and he was in Africa and he was like, uh, I've been traveling all over Africa, and I'm recording Baba Mall, and I need money. 
And it was like, no problem. Let's get this guy started out. So, uh, and he was, you know, paying guys and having them sign pieces of paper in Africa. And it it was a very exciting process. Um, The the Kendrick uh, part of it is, uh, for me, is is really a dream come true. Um, When I sat with uh, Ryan, we started to talk about. Very early on, we started trading lists back and forth, and and Ryan had made it uh, very clear that he wanted to have a broad soundtrack uh, for the film and for the actual physical record, and we started to talk about um, a lot of what's going on on the continent, and and he had been doing a lot of research and, and all this kind of great music that was coming off the continent, but the one through line that kept came, coming back to him was uh, Kendrick Lamar, and and um, I said, if you could have any one artist, who would it be? And he said, Kendrick Lamar. And, and we're so fortunate at Marvel that we've had enough movies that people are aware of our brand. Mm. So there's, we can get to a lot of people. There's, it's, the conversation's a lot easier than it normally is. Was the first reaction, who else would you want? Because he's, I mean, when you talk about someone at the top of the list, that's kind of a... We talked about three different artists, but easily Kendrick Lamar was the choice. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had had great experience representing Marvel to the music community that I felt this is a conversation. This is a real conversation. Let's have this conversation. And, um, and so uh, eventually we got to a point where we got Kendrick into a room with the director mm-hmm. and, and his manager and his, and, uh, I don't think at the time Kendrick knew while he was there. I think he was being pulled <laughs> in a million different directions. Yeah. And I don't think he knew why he was there. And so we're sitting there and uh, pretty early in the conversation, Ryan, who's a very humble person, just like Kendrick Lamar. I mean, they're like two of this, two, two sides. Be of the humble. Same mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> Kendrick, uh, uh, Ryan had introduced Ludwig. And so this is my longtime collaborator and he's scored my movies, including... Fruitvale Station and Creed, and all of a sudden the lights lit up on Kendrick's face, and he said, "You did Fruitvale Station?" Oh wow! And he said, "Yeah," and then the whole room melted away, and then it was just the two of them talking, and then they started talking about Oakland, and it was an incredible experience, which I added nothing to. Did you know at that point <laughs> that Kendrick was going to be doing the music for the movie? No, okay. no, because uh, we've—I I think Robert and I—we've we, all had meetings with artists who then their representatives say, "Why would you want to do a superhero movie? Yeah, why would you want to do? Yeah, this you know, may not fit your brand or whatever. It is. Yeah, it may not fit your brand, whatever. You don't have time or whatever." Um, but fast forward, um, he did say yes, and so uh, the, the the crazy part of the story is he was only brought in to do one song. Wow. So he was brought in to do one song, and as part of that conversation, he and Kugler c- continued to talk. Can I ask, what, was the original intent of that meeting, would you just do one song? Yes. Okay. It was just nobody one had song. said, we're going to blow this up to be a whole. No. Okay. So the idea was one song for everything, marketing, the campaign, the whole nine yards. Because at the time, we had just done a Comic-Con piece that had Be Humble in it. Or no, DNA. It had DNA, Kendrick's DNA in it. So, um, and, and Kugler had said in the meeting, the release, Kendrick, the release of your records coincide with when I wrote um, Fruitvale Station, um, Creed, yep. and 
Black Panther. And those are the records I listened to while I was writing those movies. Mm. So it was very deep, very quickly. Um, and um, so as part of the conversation about Kendrick doing the single song, Kugler and I started talking. And I said, you know, the guy has got so many great contacts. Everybody wants to be involved with him. And I've always really wanted to make a very pure, real, hey, you know, a T-Bone Burnett, if you will, executive producer, even if it's just the people on Kendrick's label. Mm. Um, and so we proposed it. And he said, yeah, all exec produce the record. Um, Great. From there, Kendrick would come in. It was, I mean, to, to work with an artist who's at the very height of their creative powers um, and for them to be so unbelievably giving of their time and humble. Because usually the way that these things work is you get one song and you never hear from them ever again. And the song isn't even necessarily about the movie and they put their name on the record and they get a royalty and that's it. That's the end of it. And we were prepared for that to happen. Um, but as we continued and showed him footage and Ryan Coogler and I and the editor would sit down and show him sequences and he never wanted to see the whole movie because he's a movie fan. He was like, no, 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 I want to see the movie in the theater when it's done. Mm-hmm. Um, um, some time went by and we didn't hear anything. About a month and a half went by. He was on tour and then he came back. And then we get a phone call and he says, can you and Ryan come over to the studio? And we went over to this nondescript studio um, and having done a lot of hip hop, it didn't have any of the trappings of hip hop. There weren't guys everywhere and you know, baby mamas and the whole kind of thing. There was three people, and we sat in the studio, and he played us 12 or 13 tracks with his scratch vocals on everything. Wow. Which is crazy. Yep. That Um, fast? Just turned all that around that fast. It's crazy. And then really the conversation was, who do you want on the record? And that's when we started talking about how the movie started in Oakland and how Ryan's all Ryan's movies have um, a touchstone to Oakland. Hmm. Um, we talked about uh, the African continent and how we really wanted artists from there. And then it became this giant collaborative thing where Kendrick picked up the phone and his manager um, and his, uh, the guy who runs his label, um, they started to pick up the phone. And people were like, sure, I'll be on the track. Yeah. <laughs> and then within a, a, a very short time period, um, I want to say a month maybe, most of the bare bones of the record were done. And, it, and that's how it happened. And, and I had gotten approached separately by uh, Carrie Ann Marshall, who was at Songs at the time. And I, uh, she brought uh, Weekend to me, Abel, from the weekend. And so Abel and I started talking. And, and a- Abel has an African uh, background. Hmm. So uh, we had a meeting with Kugler, and, and that's how Weekend kind of get, got involved. But it was uh, an unbelievable experience. Are you able to – so all this gets done and you being – representing the film, are you able to say, eh, track two, I don't know, Kendrick. It doesn't really fit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that is a great question. Um, because of the type of artist that Kendrick Lamar is and because he was so generous with his time, we went – uh, he looked at things. We showed him. It wasn't like, here's the movie, go make a track. We, 
we gave him access to footage whenever he needed. And of course, it's Marvel, so you have you know it's very careful. Yeah, that's yeah. rare. Lockdown. Um, but we we made a very clear decision um, not to have any censorship on his record. Mm. And he was very respectful of the fact that this was a Marvel movie, which is a division of Disney. Um, we knew we weren't going to make a G-rated record. We wanted it to be a real record in the same way that our movie is not a... It, it, a lot of the movies a social political statement. And so Marvel wasn't afraid of making a... Um, a record like that. I think Disney was a, a little bit more sure. understandably because of the business that they're in. But um, we we didn't have a lot of censorship on him. So we didn't give, in answer to your question, we didn't give a bunch of notes. <laughs> mm-hmm. We weren't like, oh, it should be, you know, 10 BPM faster. Like none of that went down with him. But that is a, but the answer to that question is that is a normal part of the process. I was going to say, he's probably a rare example where you're like, We'll let him slide. There are very few artists that you would, uh, you know, but you're not going to give notes to Scorsese. Right. Or to Tarantino, you know, unless they ask you, you're not going to. But him and Kugler were in lockstep on the vision side of things. Did Ludwig do any producing for Kendrick? Because he's notably, for for those that don't know, he does Donald Glover, Childish Gambino's music. So he's he's known in the rap community. Yeah. So the... uh, Ludwig was involved with the entire process because, again, he's a he's a bit of Ryan's muse hmm. on everything. So um, um, he did do uh, the track that's in the movie, which I'm blanking right now off the top of my head uh, over the over the chase sequence. Um, Ludwig produced that track. Most of the tracks were done by Soundwave, who is uh, Kendrick's longtime collaborator. Interesting. And then Ludwig would come, and Ludwig was very respectful of the process that, of which the way Kendrick wanted to work. Yeah. But, so it was, it was a, it, but it was very, it's very unusual. It was very pure. It wasn't the way these things can typically go, where it's kind of people arguing over writer line credits and yeah. who owns what. It, it, none of that happened because when I can't get into too many specifics, but if you can imagine when you get somebody like a Kendrick Lamar or Jay-Z or a Kanye or any of those kinds of things, you're talking about a lot of money to make that deal. Even for one song, you're talking about a lot of money, right? Beyonce level money is, is crazy money. This is an artist who delivered a 12, 13 track record. And of course, as the part of the business side of it, I said, Oh, we can't. I I can't go back to Marvel and ask for tens of millions of dollars for uh, for a soundtrack. And uh, all I can say is that Kendrick was beyond um, generous. I think the most beautiful part of this, strangely enough, besides the money and the impact and the creativity, you had an experience that is maybe the reason that many of us come to this business, which is to be, you know, that phrase that Lin-Manuel Miranda has, in the room where it happened. Just that description of being with Brian Coogler and Kendrick Lamar in a room, talking. These are two of the greatest stars of the early 21st century, and maybe for this century, and to be in the room with a filmmaker and a song, and an artist, songwriter, composer. Pulitzer winner? Yeah. (laughs) And be a fly on the wall, that, of all the experiences you've had, 
I know that it might not compare to working on Marmaduke or Cheaper by the Dozen, <laughs> but that to me is what a great part of your own career to be in the room with those two titans of our culture. Um, speaking of our culture, you worked on a movie. Can, can I please say one thing about that? Yes, I'd like yeah. you to. Um, when I worked on Iron Man, um, Iron Man was my favorite comic book growing up. And Iron Man gave me, you know, I had a tough childhood sometimes. And Iron Man, in a lot of ways, made me push through. Hmm. And so when I, got to do the, when I got to do the film, it was a bit of a childhood dream realized. And, uh, and I saw the way it inspired so many kids in the same way the comic book inspired me. That, that movie inspired a lot of kids. You know, it's okay to be smart and it's okay to be um, a little punk rock and, uh, you know. And I remember saying to Kendrick the day before the film came out, uh, he called me and he was on his way. He was driving back to Oakland. He wanted to be in Oakland when the movie opened. Wow. He wanted to be in the theater by his house with the, his people, you know, his, his, he's an Oakland eye his whole life. And I remember saying to him, like, you're going to change so many people's lives tomorrow. Like, and the fact that I got to be involved in a whole bunch of new kids and, and, and minorities and, and, you know, people of color is, it's, it's overwhelming. It's an overwhelming experience. And to work with these, these creative Peak, giants, but yeah. just that point in culture yeah, moving the story forward a little completely. bit i used yeah. to have uh somebody i worked with at fox who would say occasionally when i knew i was having one of those rare he'd say bottle this moment yeah. and uh, i've learned since then that there are certain times you might get three in a lifetime you might get z- one by the way shout out to fruitvale station one of my faves just shout incredible. out shout out incredible fruitvale station you know who you are <laughs> i'm just shouting out to the station so uh station's gonna call me up yeah. and say hey robert thanks for the shout out thanks yeah. for the shout out i want to ask you about guardians for a minute because it flips the script in a way on everything you just said which is you have a director on guardians that i imagine had very specific song ideas and one of the questions I was asked to ask you was, so is that where Dave just kind of goes out and does the paperwork on 12 songs that the director picks? Or are you creatively involved in those choices? How does that work on Guardians? So Guardians is a, <clears throat> let me first say that James Gunn is a genius. My very first meeting with James Gunn, I remember it was like it was yesterday. And we sat in the room, it was just James and I, and he said, okay, so you do the music for the Marvel stuff, right? And I said, yeah. And he goes, okay. When, this one's not going to be the same. Like the, it's not going to be like the other ones. We're not going to do what you normally do. Hmm. And I was like, okay. He's, he said, you're not hearing what I'm saying. He said, we're not. There's not going to be any ACDC. There's not going to be. And I said, oh, okay. And of course, I'm thrilled, right? Because every movie I work on, they're like, yeah, give me ACDC. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, great. He goes, no, no, no. You're not understanding. He goes, uh, my lead actor is going to sing and dance over main title sequence to a 1970 <laughs> song you probably don't know. And I said, what song? And he told me, and I said, well, I do know that song. And then it, there was like a beat. And I said, wait, are you fucking with me? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he said, nope, I'm dead serious. And I said, then I'm 100% in. Great. Now, because we had made variations of the same superhero movie up to that point. And, and I remember going to set and 
in we shot it in, in uh, outside London. And I remember going to set and looking, and it was inside the prison, and I and we were doing the on camera moments. And I remember going, okay, this might be ice pirates. <laughs> this might totally suck. <laughs> this might be a complete joke. Ooh. And then he brought me in very early when the cut came in. Very, very early. I saw a three, three, three and a half hour cut of it. <laughs> and I just remember going, oh my God, I could watch 10 more hours of this footage. Because I hadn't seen anything like it before, let alone the music yeah. was fantastic. But the, the humor and the, the likability of everybody in the movie um, was, was, was very special. Um, from a creative standpoint, he had uh, picked a lot of the songs. He knew the bucket he was going to oh, pull good. from. Yeah. Um, he had solicited a lot, I think via Twitter, which probably isn't so so good anymore, <laughs> yeah. or Facebook at the time or whatever. He had solicited a lot of, he had, he had kind of given some, um, he, he didn't tell anybody what the story was about, but he had solicited out in the universe for people that were following him from when he made his trauma movies, um, ideas. So he had a pretty good bucket, and obviously because the cassette had to fit with his mom and her timeline, um, he had a pretty good idea. So um, there were some things that changed around in the movie, um, but for the most part, it was James picking a lot of the stuff. Um, Marvel at that time also didn't spend money on music. So yeah, that was kind of a, a, a new idea, right? There wasn't really pop songs yeah. in the Marvel movies, or not for a lot of them. Well, but it wasn't even pop songs. They didn't spend mm-hmm. money on composers either. So a lot of the early composers, Brian Tyler and, and uh, even Alan Silvestri, and a lot of these, they did things at extremely low uh, numbers, and partly because they were just fans of comic mm-hmm. books, and their agents would say, "You're never going to do it," and they would do it anyways. Mm-hmm. Which is the same reason I did it because I wasn't getting paid anything to do the early marvel movies it was just the fanboy was like mm-hmm. of course i'll do it for free <laughs> it, 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 um so there were a lot of a lot of interesting no's that came on that movie and a lot of things that had to get turned around and um and even more so in the second one because the movie had been so successful no meaning you would offer a certain price to license a song that kind of a no? there were a lot of just denials denials because marvel um we have to be limited in the way that we give explanations of the scenes they're going to be in. So a lot of people are just not comfortable. Mm-hmm. Sounds or, of the city right now. Well, right. that's that's Marvel actually coming for Dave. <laughs> you know, you've of said too much. <laughs> <laughs> or, or, or it would be, you know, um, I don't want my... the. It was a lot of one-hit wonders on the first one. Yeah. And uh, some of... Some of some people that have one-hit wonders are more precious about their one-hit wonders than the Rolling Stones are about black and black, back and black, uh, uh, painted black. They they they're like, oh, I don't understand. The woman's green and she's dancing. Like, uh, I'm not comfortable with that. This is I, this is my thing. We went down that path on a lot. Uh, Sean Penn wanted to use the Shirley Temple song on the Good Ship Lollipop in a movie, and we had to write a description. It was in a strip club denied so so we went from uh not sure what the movie was going to be to now it's a ride at disneyland and things are looking pretty good for you (laughs) yeah and there's some great stories about even marvel marvel was 100 percent committed to the vision but I, i think they had made enough money up to that point that if the movie didn't work 
it would have been okay. Mm-hmm. Like we would have we we could have made. That's seven. a good place to be too, where they want to try something a little bit. Oh, that's Marvel. New, you know, that's Marvel. Yeah, because we could have made seven more Iron Mans. Right. right. That's what everybody. You know, just make more Iron Mans and. But it really yep. broke the mold in many ways on a superhero movie. So thank yeah, God you made it. And it and it led to being able to make an all black cast Black Panther. Yeah. Uh, again, at the height coming off of Avengers and things like that, you know. Tell us a little about Format, your company, and how that works. For our listeners that, that don't know, Format's the company. It's where we are right now. But it's the company you founded years ago, I guess now. It was shortly after you started working with Marvel and with a handful of other productions, right? Yeah. Um, Marvel, um, there are people that, uh, supervisors that came before me, uh, guys like Joel Sill and Bud Carr and the guys at Windswept, where it was a group of supervisors working and they would have a shared back office. They would have a shared coordinator or shared whatever. Most supervisors uh, act as either one person or one person with an intern or one person with an assistant. Sometimes it's two people with an assistant and it's always in the garage somewhere or a... Yep. And so, but the, the funny thing is most supervisors have the same problems. And so... Meaning, um, it's not always, oh, I need a great song for this scene. It's, I need a gypsy violin player who will work non-union. Do you know anybody? Mm-hmm. And I, it's for an indie movie. <clears throat> and so my, my wife is also a music supervisor. Um, and my wife and I didn't work together. We didn't cross streams. Um, but we would sometimes hit each other up for advice on how to do this or that as we went through kind of the process of supervision. So one of the ideas, and I was friends with a lot of other supervisors, even though we were competing together. So the idea was, how can we put like-minded people with the same problems in the room together and share back office? Um, That's the very basic uh, concept of format. What format has grown into is um, we have kind of multiple, and, and, and as I grew the company, I never wanted to say no to a filmmaker ever i don't ever turn opportunities down so in order to not have to turn down the guy i maybe i did a tv pilot for who's now making a mid-level movie i had to make sure i had a staff that Mm. could handle those movies with me because that guy making that mid-level movie might be vex making the multi-million dollar movie or they're making a million multi-million dollar movie and i love them but now they're making you know Perfect. Snapchat. Yep. Right. Movies. So, and, but it doesn't change the fact that I love them and I want to work with them and I want to support their career because we all kind of go through cycles and it goes up and down and up and down all over the place. So, um, format was really, uh, I started to team up with some people I was very close with, including Julia Michaels, who used to work for Robert Kraft, who is one of the great supervisors in the business, and Julianne Jordan, who's one of the great supervisors in the business, and uh, Jojo Villanueva, who's now at Sony, who was here with me for 18 years and then we have uh, multiple layers of supervisors the other half of our business is we create original content for uh, productions small productions and again it's scaled so we can always help whoever needs the help Mm. Um, so it's the whole building is built to like we all eat lunch together every day at one so there's just there's there's something about, you know, in my building, I have engineers and producers and rappers and singers and writers. So I have this whole bundle of creative energy downstairs mm. that feeds 
us upstairs and it keeps everybody current. So we have lots of young people kind of constantly feeding in the shows they went to and, and the artists that they're into and all that kind of stuff. So that's, that's the idea. Answers your question about being having your finger on the pulse of pop culture. And speaking of that, we always save this till the end. Uh oh. But we're going to play a little game <laughs> to test your pop culture uh, no. knowledge here. Sweeping social media. What game is that? Name, Name that, that score. Get ready to play Name That Score. The film music game where a perfect score means you, yes you, could be a winner. Now let's play Name That Score. All right. So, uh, Robert, you're right on the mark. This is uh, Famous Movie Songs. We've done this once before. This is version two. And these all, I think these all proceed... Uh, Dave's experience. Oh, I was so going to say, were they all stretching. put in movies by Dave? <laughs> oh, God, don't do that. I can't remember have, my own movies. have a unique advantage and win the game. <laughs> They're not all Marvel this movies. This is no. all the Kendrick Lamar Black Panther story. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you just have to know them Although, backwards. that would be that oh would probably God. be challenging if you got to Don't play Fat Albert. Those. <laughs> so, oh. here's the way this works. We play five famous film scores, but in reverse, and today it's songs. Uh, Robert, Kenny, and Dave will pick from three multiple-choice answers. The last question is worth double. If anybody gets all five right, we give away a prize on our Twitter account at ScoreThePodcast. Just mention hashtag name that score. Wow. Today's theme is famous movie songs. We uh, have six questions here. The songs are much more recognizable than is scores in motif in, reverse, in a score. Yeah. So what we did the first time was we made this more complicated. I don't know if we need to do that this time, but let's try this out for a couple of questions. Question one, is this Lose Yourself from 8 Mile, Eminem, Happy from Despicable Me, Pharrell, or When Doves Cry from Purple Rain? Oh, these are good, good choices. <laughs> I'm sorry, can you repeat the song titles? Because I have no idea those songs. Uh, options are Lose Yourself from 8 Mile, Happy from Despicable Me, and When Doves Cry from Purple Rain. Play backwards. Eight Mile, Eminem. Yeah, it's kind of yeah. Lose Yourself vibe. Lose Yourself. Yeah. All right, so points for everybody. This song was huge, by the way. Yeah. Yep. Man, I'll never forget when that... When it's that, one of the great... Spaghetti. When that trailer started playing and that song, you only heard snippets of it. I remember like this was like in the Napster period, and it was like, how can we figure out what song that is? Oh, that was like Eminem explosion. Half the directors I sit with say, you know that there's that Eminem song? I want something like that. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm sure you <laughs> <Who> do. <doesn't? laughs> uh, all right, so we all have one point. We're moving on to question two. Is this Ghostbusters, Ray Parker Jr. from Ghostbusters, Back in Time, from Back to the Future, Huey Lewis, and the news. Staying Alive from Saturday Night Fever, the Bee Gees. You almost don't need to give the clues. <laughs> I know. Well, that, that's maybe we, we approach that after your answers here. So let's make Robert go first because he's the only one that didn't react. Yeah, he looks a little confused. <laughs> Ghostbusters, I, Back I, in I Time, Staying Alive. I thought it was a Staying Alive pocket kind of reversed, but ooh. There's a little Huey Lewis there, but I'm gonna I'm gonna go staying alive. All right. Robert's going staying alive. Dave, earlier you said you and your wife don't cross streams. 
and I'm going to go with Ghostbusters. <laughs> nice. Uh, all right, Dave. Ghostbusters back in time, staying alive. Staying alive. We all pick different things on this? Is that right? Oh, Dave and I went staying alive. He went Ghostbusters. He went Ghostbusters. Oh, well, in that case, no everybody missed it. it. Lewis? Oh, man. That was a tricky one because the, the beat the the BPM is pretty similar. Yeah, well, Huey Lewis and, and that Ghostbuster song. You know, there's a big lawsuit about about uh, when the Ghostbuster song You're came out. Right. Oh, look at you! Just so they were built on uh, the you know, similar. You're giving what? that but lawyer a it case. Wasn't that Huey Lewis song? Ghost no, it wasn't. It was. Um, I want a new drug. Yeah, no, that, that was it. That was it. Yeah. Okay. All right. So nobody gets points for that. Oh I man. We all struck out. And we're moving on to uh, question three. So I guess we will give the answers. So then. we were planning on giving away <laughs> Dave's first edition of Daredevil, but since yeah. we missed the question, it's over. Sorry, yeah. guys. Sorry, sorry, everybody. Next yeah. three songs. You All can right. keep it, Dave. Question three. Is this Ghostbusters? Again, from Ghostbusters. We don't have enough movie songs. we got to use them <laughs> twice. Go ahead. Don't You Forget About Me don't from Breakfast you. Club. Simple uh, Minds. Yeah. And Eye of the Tiger from Rocky Three. Oh, that's, that's so unfair. That's it's so little. I got it. Want to hear it again? I got it. Want to hear it Go again? Go ahead, Rob. <laughs> it's easy. Ghostbusters, don't you forget about me. Eye of the Tiger. It's Ghostbusters. 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 <laughs> I want a new drug. When I want to know. When I land it, don't I'm saying? Gonna land it on. I want a new drug. <laughs> just so excited about our yeah. t- we have two guests this week <laughs> huey lewis and dave jordan's great uh all right so we are moving on to question part four. of the next question too <laughs> robert's taking what other ray here. parker jr hit <laughs> none is this uh, ghostbusters 2 or karate kid 3 or huey lewis question four is this somewhere over the rainbow from the wizard of oz my what? ringtone no, I'm just when you wish upon a star from Jiminy Pinocchio, Cricket. or sing it in the rain from Sing It in the Rain. <laughs> oh my God! <laughs> I'm gonna say Judy Garland singing "Somewhere Over the Rainbow." Same, the same. <laughs> that one was way too easy. If you listen to this. I tried to pick the lowest register of the whole song that she sings in. So maybe it would sound like somewhere over the rainbow in there, when, maybe when that was at the highest register, but didn't really work. Nope. <laughs> Points for everybody. All right. Did Ray Parker Jr. cover that? I got confused. <laughs> somewhere over the rainbow. <laughs> I want a new rainbow. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, question five. Everybody's tied. So is this Streets of Philadelphia from Philadelphia, Bruce Springsteen, Mrs. Robinson from The Graduate, Simon and Garfunkel, or Live and Let Die from Live and Let Die? Paul and Linda? Paul and Wings. Wings. Yeah. Again, Streets of Philadelphia, Mrs. Robinson, or Live and Let Die. And Live and Let Die. 
Live and let die. <laughs> I gotta get some of that karaoke <laughs> with uh, Robert. Um, I don't know, but I think I'm gonna go with what Robert was just yelling out. <laughs> Wings. Wings. All right. Oh, he's playing the air drums again. There it is. All right. So, look, we're tied. We have a a bonus question. Question six. Uh, We usually play this anyway, but it's a good tiebreaker. So um, here's what we're going to do on these. These are all James Bond songs. Shirley Bassey, Goldfinger. That's my answer. Goldfinger. Uh, Robert loses. Um, So Sam Smith. I'm not going to give answers for this one. (laughs) Skyfall. You got to name it, which means Dave may have an advantage here, or Robert maybe. Carly Simon. Go ahead. (laughs) Question six. Name that Bond song. All right, hold on a sec. Everybody, think of your answers. And we can play it again if you need it. There's, Robert looks there's confused. There's thought going on with Dave right now. Kenny, do you have it? Kenny? No. No? <laughs> it's like a mid-80s kind of rock guitar Bond song by who would have been a huge or British 90s. artist. Yeah, oh, 90s. you know who it is? Who? ACDC. <laughs> they really wanted it in the movie, and they got it. I'm going... I think it's 90s. Do we want to hear it again? Yeah. I have no idea. Chris Cornell. Wow. Did he do a Bond song? Yeah. I, I uh, love the answer. Robert's not taking And a... I love the artist, so I'm going to go with Chris Cornell. <laughs> I don't know if you can <laughs> this do This is that. why we make Robert go first. <laughs> I'm saying Chris Cornell. I'm feeling strong. It was kind of a sound garden. I don't know kinda, if you get points for that one because uh, we didn't give you the options. Yeah. You're truly piggybacking yeah, off the I, answer. You here. think? No, I just felt Chris Cornell I'm somehow. going with Goldeneye. Kenny's <laughs> yeah. Goldeneye. Is that Gold, a band? Gold. All right. Let's see if you can hear this forward. If you take life, do you Nailed it. You Thank Dave. you. Dave. <laughs> and kind of Robert. <laughs> <laughs> Not really Robert at all. Just Robert saying Dave Jordan. But knows. we were on the right path right. with the 80s, 90s. But I think he recorded it in the 2000s, oh, right? Wow. Yeah, I think that. Well, right I think died? the movie came out in 2006. I want to say yeah. Casino Royale. So it yeah, would have been yeah. early, somewhere in those first few years of the 2000s. Yeah. All right, yeah. you've proven yourself as band. a music supervisor. <laughs> yes. That so was the ultimate Dave test, just which won, means actually. our big winner is. This is our way of telling you they want you to do the next Bond movie. Dave Jordan. <laughs> I'll do the next Bond movie. Idris Elba as I'd James do it Bond. For free. Oh, wouldn't that be I'd cool? Do it for the free. coolest. Um, so, Dave, I I have a question that we uh, we we thought up, and I've always been curious about this. We usually interview composers. You're the first music supervisor we've had on this podcast. There's always kind of a give and take when you're working with a composer. It's another person with an artistic vision, musical vision. How often 
a lot of movies have that big music moment, a montage or, you know, this, this, you know, the character in their deepest place in, in a movie. How often is that a song and a composer says, no, Dave, give me that. I want to try to score that. Because I feel that's like a dream come true kind of a sequence for a composer. But I would assume a lot of times it's a song that a director has a vision to fit there. Well, it just, boy, it really depends. It depends on the movie, depends, you know. Again, we can talk about Marvel Universe is very specific about the way they use those things. We like to hit our big superhero moments with a big score. Yep. So that's usually the way it is on Panther Obviously, we did that, but we also used a song over a big montage. So yep. it really depends. Um, Do composers ever try to take back some scene yeah. that... Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Composers will try to take it back, or sometimes we'll push things on to the composer because we can't <laughs> afford the song right. that's been, been in there. Well, and... I've been in a couple where there's a, almost a subtle competition. Everybody, mm-hmm. you try and find a song, and you try and score it, and you don't know till the end which one becomes the winner really and and i think this is probably true when you were at fox too on superhero movies there's legacy themes so sometimes you know d- most composers never want to do the theme from the first movie mm-hmm. right you they're always like John i'm Williams gonna do it sequel. better <laughs> right they're like yeah. i want to do it but be- i can do it better and let me have an opportunity and let me try and sometimes that works and sometimes you're like no we want to stay on brand and let's stay with the theme so yep it just it it's a it's a big thing with sequel movies. That's, That's interesting. Good question, Matt. We we're just sitting here chatting about this, but I, I would assume the passion that we see from composers who yeah. say, "Are you kidding me?" That that montage of someone's entire life passing, you know, and and like that's a dream, but like. That's song territory. You want to too, use Radiohead and not my right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it just depends. If, if, if it depends how I feel about it. Yeah, that's right. I, I have no pro. I don't care if they don't want to put a song in there. I don't care if the if yep. the score is going to make me cry. I don't care. Take the song out. Yeah, and I think does the emotion. The answer actually comes full circle on this episode because one of the things you want to approach this whole issue with is who are you going to call. <laughs> oh, God. Oh. I knew this wasn't going to be like, realistic. Oh, Try the veal. Don't forget to tip your waitress. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I'll, I'll be the first to say that this has been really interesting, a really interesting conversation as somebody who doesn't come from the, you know, the studio world behind closed doors. I think it was really cool to bring what you do to the forefront and let the listeners know. Yeah. There's, there's so much to it, and we never hear about this part of it. We hear the, We see the movie. We hear the music. But... So much work goes into it. We want to thank you for uh, coming on the show, Dave. Definitely. Thank you. Studio audience, thanks you as well. <laughs> thank you so much. Uh, we want to remind our listeners we're continuing to grow and we need your help growing. Go on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform, rate and review. And also be sure to follow us on Twitter at Score the Podcast. Thank you so much. And Matt, Kenny, I also want to say what a joy to be with you, DJ, my main man, Dave Jordan teaching us all about the inside world of music supervision. Thanks for joining us on Score the Podcast. We will see you next week.